Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Uh, feel free to grab the Pew Bible on the seat back in front of you. We're going to be going through it a lot today. And it's going to be a challenge for you to keep up with me. <laughs> We're going to just keep flipping through. You'll, you'll understand why in a minute. Um, but uh, yeah, just, just be prepared. All right. Let me pray and then let's dig into the Word. Father, thank You again for the opportunity to gather together in Your name this morning. And Lord, we recognize that that's, that's why we're here. There's, there's no other reason. We're gathered in Your name. We're not gathered as a, a social club. We're not gathered as just a, um, there's something to do on a Sunday morning. We're gathered because, Lord, You have gathered us through Your Son by Your Spirit. You've made us Your people. And You've given us, Lord, the awareness of our greatest privilege, Lord, which is to know You. To worship You. To, to be in right relationship with You. And Father, we know that, that that means that we also can be in right relationship with one another. So Father, as we look at that idea of how right relationship with You fosters right relationship with one another. I pray that You'd help us to see Your grand plan for redemption and reconciliation in Christ. Would You give us a vision, Lord, for what You're doing and why we exist in this world as Your church? What's, what's our mission still, Father? How do we continue to bring glory to You as we gather together in Your name? So speak to us, Father, through Your Word. Speak to us by Your Spirit. May you indeed receive the honor and the glory for you are worthy. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you'll recall, if you were here last week, we started a, a, a new series just for the summer. We're, we're talking about what are the vision, what is the vision, and what are the values of our church? Uh, and I mentioned that this is something that we, uh, we did about seven years ago and haven't really revisited it. Uh, it's time to redo that. And it's also time because as we're talking about planting a church in the Rogers Park neighborhood just to our north, uh, we're, we're wanting to be thinking together about what, what, what's the church for and why, what are we doing up there? How is that vision shared? Not only there, but also here as we continue to walk by faith until the Lord comes. We exist as His people in this world for a reason. Uh, so we're, we're just evaluating that together. And I want to remind you that we started with the foundational priority last week. It was a Trinitarian priority. It, it, it's, it's simply this. It's that we, as a church, we exist first and foremost for the glory of God. And that our priority in glorifying God is, is to do that through the Gospel of Jesus Christ and recognizing that His deposit in us as believers is His Holy Spirit who's given us a mission. So we exist for the glory of God through the power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and for the, the spiritual mission that God has given to us and empowers us for to bring Him glory in the world. That's the church's foundational priority. In other words, it's about Him. The church isn't about us. It's about God. It's about His glory. And we exist for that purpose. We find our purpose in that purpose. Right? So that was an important place to start. Because everything that we're going to talk about in terms of vision and values flows out of that. It's about the glory of God, the gospel of Jesus, and the mission of the Spirit. 
Everything flows out of that. If we were to put the cart before the horse, it would be easy to start talking about all the things that we, we could be doing as a church, uh, but get really off base, get, get really off center, because the, the horse, if you will, the glory of God, the gospel of Jesus, and the mission of the Spirit has to come first. But if we recognize that, then, then it's okay to say, you know what, there is a cart that follows. There are things that God has called us to, to not only to be, but to do as His people. The church has a, has a purpose in bringing glory to God. And it has a, that purpose is fleshed out in, in something that's actualized in the world. You shall be my witnesses, he says to his disciples, right? And that was, the, that was starting where they were in Judea and was spreading to the ends of the earth. And we're still in that trajectory. In fact, as I mentioned last week, we're very much at the ends of the earth from where they were sitting in Judea that day 2,000 years ago, right? But until the Lord returns, that mission continues. We're to be His witnesses. So the question is, how? What does it look like to give witness to? And again, witness is to tell what you've seen. We can tell what we've seen and we can show what we've seen. How do we do that? So the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about different ways in which we will witness the glory of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And today, I want to start with this topic. It's that we are to be a church that is diverse and unified. Diverse and unified. And what I want to do is show you this morning that that topic, that idea of being diverse and unified, is both a biblical concept, but it's also very much a contextual one that's relevant to us here in Edgewater. Because of our context. We're not in a mono-ethnic neighborhood Diversity is all around us. And so what I want to say is, how does that affect who we are as a church? And, and how is that given an opportunity to point to the gospel? So we'll walk through that here together. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to do that in, in three, uh, three ways this morning. The first is I want to give you a biblical theology of the nations. Biblical theology is simply this. It's, it's, it's seeing that there are certain themes that trace through the whole of the Bible. So when you, see, when you hear someone talking about doing a biblical theology, they're saying there's a, there's a theme that, that you can watch a trajectory again, an arc through the Bible. It sees that there's something significant about that idea that God is speaking into. God is revealing something of Himself through. And this idea of, of nations is one of those key themes. Uh, and I'll show it to you. It's, very briefly, I won't be able to do it justice this morning, but I want to show you a biblical theology of nations. Uh, then secondly, we're going to then talk about a gospel application of that biblical theology. In other words, we don't just see a theme unfolding in Scripture, but there's a, there's a specific gospel uh, purpose in it. Okay, And then the last thing we'll do is we'll talk about just contextual opportunity. And again, relate that to who we are in Chicago, who we are specifically in this neighborhood and in Rogers Park, which happen to be exceedingly diverse places. Okay? So that's our, that's our theme this morning. That's sort of our outline this morning. So I told you to grab your Bibles. This is where it's going to get challenging. All right? I'm going to do a biblical theology. So in other words, we're about to start in Genesis. We're going to end in Revelation in about 10 minutes. And I'm going to do my best to try to show you the arc, the biblical theology of nations. So Genesis chapter 1. Okay? 
Genesis chapter 1, I want you to see where, where does humanity begin? We see that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Let me just read it to you. You've probably heard this many, many times, but I want to remind you what God was doing here. Then God said, I'm in verse 26 actually, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And I'll stop there. just want to highlight a couple of key things here. Again, so we see in the creation of mankind, we see that, that man and woman are made in the image of God. Right? They're, they're the likeness of God. Unlike any other part of creation, there's a specific and unique quality given to mankind to be an image bearer of the Creator. Now, I, I, I point that out because I want you to remember that when Jorge was up here just a few minutes ago and he read from Acts chapter 17, we see there a tie-in as Paul refers back to this scene and he's telling us something not just about the creation of Adam and Eve, but the creation of everybody. He says it's from this one man that God made the nations. Right? So every human being that's ever existed and ever will traces our, we all trace our lineage back to Adam and Eve. And in that tracing back to Adam and Eve, we recognize that we then share that common identity as being image bearers. It's not just a common identity, it's a, it's an equality, right? We are all, as humanity, equally image bearers of the Creator. And then what was the mandate that God gave to them as His image bearers? He says to them, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the idea was that God's image was then to go out into, into, into the four corners of the planet and populate this world so that God's image would be seen everywhere right that's the creation that's the purpose of mankind that's what we all share in as the image bearers that mandate and the idea is that there's a there's a there's a way to look at humanity and see what god is like and what god is like which is revealed in the fact that he makes a man and a woman together as his image we see something about plurality we see a trinitarian hint here but we see unity. In fact, at the end of that chapter, we see chapter 2, we see God putting them together in marriage and calling them one flesh. Why? Because that, create, that, that sort of completes the image of God. Plurality united together in, as one to create, to form, to reflect the image of God. And there's something about all of us together that have that potential. Right? So just file that away. And then recognize what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, all of that unwinds. Adam and Eve sin against the Lord God. And a result of that sin is that their relationship, their oneness as the two image bearers is fractured. Their relationship with God is fractured. 
and their relationship with one another is fractured. And we see that in verses 15 and following, right? We see that I will put enmity between you know you and the serpent. There's enmity between me and you, and there'll be enmity between you and each other. The wife and the husband are going to have relational conflict. They're going to want to rule over each other. So sin undoes all of that, right? But there's a promise that's given. Nonetheless, even in the midst of the curse of their sin, and it's in verse 15, God makes a promise that through Eve, through her offspring, something's going to happen. So one will come who will do something about this serpent, about Satan, who will do something about this sin problem. He says to the serpent, you shall bruise his heel, but he'll bruise your head. Right? There's a Gospel promise here given in the midst of this brokenness. Now, flip over a little bit to Genesis chapter 10. Get to Genesis chapter 10, and we see the formation of nations. This is after the flood. So Noah's family now is the only family on the, on the planet. That sin had gotten so bad that God destroys the planet through the flood, but then He saves that one family. And in Genesis chapter 10, we see the, the, the children of Noah begin to spread out, and we see nations are formed from their families. I'm not going to read through all of it, but if you, if you, if you were to take some time and to study through Genesis chapter 10, you'd see that the, the names of the nations and the names of the people groups that are listed here, having come from various children of Noah, those have been traced back to basically people groups all over the current world. So these people groups became modern Africans, modern Europeans, modern Asians. And we can trace back lineages to these groups. So this is the formation of nations. Again, being reminded that they all came from the same place, from the same family, and yet God has spread them out throughout the world into different people groups. Genesis 11 explains how and why that happened. Genesis 11 is the scene of the Tower of Babel. We're told here that the whole earth had one language, and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar, and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So remember the mandate of God. The mandate of God was make a name for my image and my name and be spread out over the whole earth. And they said, no, let's make a name for ourselves and let's not be dispersed over the whole earth. It's, this is sin and this is rebellion. And as a result of that rebellion, then God confused their languages and scatters them. But again, just like we saw in Genesis 2 and 3 where you originally have unity and then through the fall of sin you have division, here we see the same thing. After their sin, division, brokenness, consequence. That oneness is broken. But again, God does something about it. Genesis chapter 12 immediately follows Genesis chapter 11 with some very interesting news. 
Genesis 11, we just see God saying, I'm going to disperse the nations and confuse them. Genesis chapter 12, we see then the call of a man named Abram, later to become Abraham. And God says this to him in verses 2 and 3. He says of Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, key phrase here, in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So just like in Genesis 3 where we have a curse but it's followed by a promise, here we see the same thing. There's a curse it's followed by a promise. God's just scattered all of the nations, but He says, I'm going to bless them again. I'm going to bless them. And He starts with Abram. And if we follow the trajectory then of the Old Testament, we see that from here, God does, through Abraham's family, then begin to call out a people, make them into a nation. Uh, we see this in Exodus when Moses leads the people out of Egypt, right? God forms the nation of Israel. Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we see that what God is doing is He's creating a bit of an incubator for them. He's pulling them out of that sinful wickedness and He's by His grace making them into a holy people. He leads them towards Canaan. And you begin to think that maybe what God is doing here is He's saying, look, I've had it with all the other nations. I'm just going to focus on this one. But that's not exactly what God is doing. He's starting with one. But He makes many promises to them throughout the Old Testament that they are indeed going to fulfill what He said to Abraham. In you, I will bless all the families of the earth. All of the nations are still in My sight. I haven't abandoned them all. I'm using you to reach them. Psalm 67, verses 1-3. to God says this, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us that Your way may be known on earth that Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the people praise You. Psalm 86, All the nations You have made shall come and worship before You, O Lord, and they shall glorify Your name. Zechariah 2, And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be My people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent Me to you. See what he's doing here? Even though he's called out one people group, he's continuing to fulfill that promise and, and saying there's a coming day when all of the nations are coming back. I'm going to bring them back together to Me. They will worship Me again as one. And so we get to the Old Testament and we sort of have this summation then of, of this idea of the nations. In, in the Old Testament, we see generally that nations represent judgment. They represent rejection of God. They represent the kingdoms of man. However, there's one nation that is called out by God to be a holy people, to be separate, and through whom God will draw back the rest of the nations to Himself in the future. And the Old Testament sort of ends there with this messianic promise sort of hanging heavy over them all. God, when and how are you going to do this? And we get to the New Testament, and the New Testament opens up with the announcement of the arrival of Jesus as the Messiah 
And Jesus' announcement is in this form. The kingdom of God is at hand. And John makes that announcement in probably the most famous verse in the Bible. John 3.16, For God so loved who? The world that He gave His only begotten Son. It doesn't say God so loved Israel that He gave His only begotten Son, but He loved the world. His plan is in effect to reunite all things to Himself through the sending of His Son. And it's Ephesians 1 that makes this so crystal clear. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us this. I I think this is probably the most significant verse in the New Testament. In Him, Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us, get this, the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So what that tells me is that what Paul's about to say here is of monumental significance. He's saying, do you want to know what the purpose of God is? You want a summation of how the Old Testament was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah and the drawing of all things back to Himself? This is the purpose of God. To unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's what God is doing in Jesus. He came, He died, and He rose again for the forgiveness of our sins. And so individually, as we take hold of that by faith, we are reconciled to God. But the purpose was not just for you individually, but globally that God is uniting all things together under the headship of Jesus. That's what He's doing. How? Think of the mission and the ministry of Jesus. What does He say to His disciples? This Gospel of the Kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them. Teaching them. Right? All nations. Acts 1.8 As He's departing. We looked at this last week. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be My witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see what He's doing? He's teaching His disciples to go about this mission and ministry of the Holy Spirit because the purpose is to unite all things back under the headship of Christ. All peoples. All nations. Through the Gospel. And then we get to Acts chapter 2. Which I don't have on the screen, but that's okay. You can flip there if you want to. But Acts chapter 2 is a significant moment. Because in Acts chapter 2, we see the day of Pentecost. And if you're remembering what happened in Genesis chapter 11, when the whole world understood a similar language, they all spoke one language, but because of their sin, God confused their languages and scattered them. We see now in the arrival of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the church as it's taking shape, the first thing that God does is He, by His Spirit, He enables His disciples to speak in various languages so that all the people who are gathered there together representing the nations of the world were able to hear commonly the same message. The confusion of Babel is reversed in the unity of Pentecost. How? By the proclaiming of the Gospel of Jesus. 
few chapters later in Acts chapter 10, we see Peter going out and preaching that gospel to the first non-Jewish recipient, a Gentile named Cornelius. And Cornelius and his household put their faith in Christ. And suddenly the church realizes that, in fact, God is doing something that goes beyond Israel. When Jesus said to the ends of the earth, He meant it. What are we going to do with this? And they recognize that, yes, indeed, God is calling the Gentiles, which is another word for the nations, to Himself. And the ministry then of the apostles throughout the rest of the New Testament is a ministry, particularly with Paul, in going to the nations, to the Gentiles, and proclaiming to them unity in Christ. And he says something significant in Genesis chapter, or excuse me, in Galatians chapter 3, which we'll look at in more detail in a minute. But what he says there is this he says, There's now neither Jew nor Gentile. As Jorge was talking about earlier, economic statuses, social statuses, gender. He says, There's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male or female. All are one in Christ. And then we get to Revelation. How long did it take me to do that biblical theology? We get to Revelation and we see the culmination of all of that. When when Jesus' mission and ministry is fulfilled, this is what we read earlier, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Every tribe, nation, and language represented, clothed in white, which is, I think, a picture of their their unity in righteousness, worshiping Jesus. So if the summation of the Old Testament was that the nations represented judgment, separation, and sin, but that there was this promise that God was going to bring it back together, the New Testament nations represent the fullness of the kingdom that Jesus is establishing by uniting all things back to God and Himself. The nations are no longer that which God's people are to separate from, but rather to go into and proclaim the Gospel. And in the end again, God's elect are gathered from every tribe, tongue, language, nation, recreated to exist as one people in one city under the headship of our one Lord, Jesus. You see how there's an arc there in the Bible? There's a trajectory there. So let's talk about some gospel application for that. Okay? Let's talk about gospel application. Considering where we currently are on that arc. And again, we talked about that a little bit last week, but, but here's, here's the bottom line. The church exists as the first fruit of Jesus' reconciling work. That's what the church currently is. We are those that have already been brought under the headship of Christ. And eventually, it'll all come together. But the church existing today, we're, we're a picture of that. An already existence of that. Considering where we are then on that arc, you might be already picking up that, that I might be heading towards a call for multi-ethnic churches. Because we've talked about 
that idea a lot as a church. We've talked about the fact that we live in a multi-ethnic community, that we've historically been a multi-ethnic church, and we've intentionally sought to foster that multi-ethnicity as a, as a church, uh, both in the present and for the future. So you, you might be sort of picking up, I bet that's where Bill's going next, right? Uh, but, but, but before we assume too much, I want to ask a few questions. Because we've heard terms like multi-ethnicity a lot. We hear terms like diversity. We hear terms like racial reconciliation. And I want to ask this, are those the same thing? Are they the same thing? And perhaps more importantly, why are we bothering to talk about this as a church? We've already said that our foundational priorities are the glory of God and the Gospel of Jesus and the, the mission of the Spirit. So is racial reconciliation, is that whole idea a worthy outflow of that Trinitarian priority? In other words, is this just a social issue or is it actually a Gospel issue? Well, let's address that a little bit. We should be, I'll admit, we should be very careful about referring to various issues as gospel issues, sort of willy-nilly. But this isn't one of them. D.A. Carson says something important about racial reconciliation and the gospel. Listen to what he says. He says, certainly the majority of Christians in America today would happily aver that good race relations are a gospel issue. They might point out that God's saving purpose is to draw to Himself through the cross men and women from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, that the church is one new humanity made up of Jew and Gentile, that Paul tells Philemon to treat his slave Onesimus as his brother, as the apostle himself, that this trajectory starts at creation with all men and women being made in the image of God and finds its anticipation in the promise to Abraham that in his seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Moreover, the salvation secured by Christ in the Gospel is more comprehensive than justification alone. It brings repentance, wholeness, love for brothers and sisters in the Christian community. So in other words, he's saying basically everything that Bill just spent the last 15 minutes talking about, we could all go, okay. He says, but the sad fact remains that not all Christians have always viewed race relations within the church as a gospel issue. But it is. And here's why. Remember, we looked at Ephesians 1 and we saw that God was drawing all things together. That's His grand purpose under the headship of Jesus Christ. We looked at that. I want to put it up on the screen again for you just to browse at. But I want to ask you to turn to Ephesians because I want to walk you through a few more verses here. And if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 976. I'm going to borrow heavily here from a professor at Southern Seminary named Jarvis Williams, who I think did a really excellent treatment of, of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 under this idea of how the Gospel intersects with the idea of racial reconciliation. And he says that the mystery of the Gospel is an important theme in Ephesians. And again, it's here. We see it here. This mystery. Uh, what is God doing here through his sending His Son? What's the purpose of it all? 
He defines this mystery as the unification of all things in Christ, which we've said, and as the gospel of your salvation in verse 13 of chapter 1, which you can see hopefully in front of you. We get to chapter 2, and then we see Paul recalling the fact that we're all dead in our sins and separated from God, right? You were once dead in your trespasses and sins. That's a very well-known passage here. We see this idea though, but God, but God did something about that. He makes us alive in Christ and He saves us by His grace. And so here's what I think what can often happen is that we recognize that that's an implication of the Gospel and a foundational one. We are individually, we're dead in our trespasses and sin and yet God by His grace through His Son does something about that. He saves us, not by our own works, but by His grace. And we can, we can sort of say, okay, well, that's, that's the gospel then. The gospel is about reconciliation between me and God. And it is. But that's not all that God does in the gospel. Paul goes on to say that the gospel includes the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles into one new humanity. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. It begins with this second sharp uh, adversative, but now, right? just like we saw in, in earlier, but God, he says, but part of that, what God did, but now is this. And he points to something else that Christ has already accomplished. The Gentiles who were far away have been brought near. The nations who were far away have been brought near. They were brought near God's promises of salvations to the Jews by the blood of Jesus. So the good news of the Gospel includes this fact that a Jewish Messiah, Jesus, died so that He would put an end to the dividing wall of hostility not only between God and man, but between mankind. Between Jew and Gentile specifically here to reconcile Jews and Gentiles to God and to one another through the cross. Which made both groups one dwelling place of God by the Spirit. That's verses 14 to 22 of chapter 2. And Jesus preached this gospel of peace. Peace meaning reconciliation to Jews near to the promises and to Gentiles far away from those promises. We get to chapter 3 in Ephesians, and Paul refers to the stewardship of the grace given to Paul. Verse 2, he describes that stewardship again as a mystery that was made known to Paul by revelation. And that mystery is the mystery of Christ as revealed by Paul. And that mystery explicitly states that its content is Jew and Gentile inclusion as fellow heirs. As of the same body because they're partakers of God's promise in Christ by the Gospel. That's verse 6. And he connects reconciliation between Jew and Gentile to the Gospel by stating that God graciously called Paul to proclaim as good news the inexpressible riches of Christ to those nations. To the Gentiles. Verse 8. Alright, so look up for a second. I know that's kind of a lot to sort of cram into just a short few paragraphs on my part. But think about this. 
Is it exegetically accurate to say that Ephesians 2 and 3 are all about racial reconciliation? At least in the way that we think about those terms today? Not necessarily, but I want you to catch this. The ancient division between Jew and Gentile is not quite the same as the divisions that we see today between black and white, or you know, Serbian or Croatian or Hutu and Tutsi or other ethnic groups that the conflicts that we kind of see in front of us and understand today. Not quite the same because the division between Jew and Gentile was God's own doing. It was, it was a part of His covenantal plan. We see that in the Old Testament. He's pulling out His people and separating them from the nations. But we get here again to Ephesians 2 and 3, and, and what they're doing is they're dwelling on the fulfillment of that covenantal plan. Uniting them together in Christ. So if that's the case, even though this may be a slightly different kind of rec- racial reconciliation than what we might see in front of us, certainly we must say that a lesson or an implication of these chapters is that Christ united Christians of every ethnicity together. He removed ethnicity as a barrier. The good news of the Gospel in that sense then includes the idea of racial reconciliation. Christ did that. He reconciled us both to God and to one another. Both to God and to one another. So again from Professor Williams who I was quoting earlier, he says, Gospel-grounded racial reconciliation indeed produces multi-ethnic and diverse churches. But diversity is not the same as Gospel-centered racial reconciliation, and the goal of Gospel-centered racial reconciliation is not simply diversity. An assembly of the United Nations is multi-ethnic. The army is multi-ethnic. Our local high school is multi-ethnic. Lots of groups are. And yet, we couldn't look at all of those groups and say that they're enjoying the racial reconciliation of the Gospel. Gospel-grounded racial reconciliation begins with what Christ accomplished at the cross. That's what makes it unique. He united one-time enemies to God and therefore to one another. He made the two one. And so racial reconciliation, unlike diversity or just multi-ethnicity, begins with the indicative of who we are in Christ. And then, racial reconciliation shows itself in our love for the other. It flows from the Spirit-empowered obedience and demonstration of who we are in Christ. To define it simply as diversity or to think that churches are racially reconciled simply because they're diverse or they're multi-ethnic might be misleading. Racial reconciliation truly happens when the Gospel takes deep root in the church. Does that make sense? All right. So, what does that mean for us here at Edgewater? Let's, Let's talk a little bit about that contextual opportunity. This is something that really compelled me eight years ago. I think I mentioned last week. Today's my eight-year anniversary 
as the pastor here, which is exciting. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I didn't say that for applause this week or last week, but but I, just again to remind, like I I came here eight years ago, um, in large measure because I, because God compelled me by the excitement of what I'm about to show you about how this context here there's a there's a tremendous opportunity for something about to display the gospel edgewater and rogers park this is to say there's a lot of people who live in these two neighborhoods all right there are 56,520 people living in the edgewater neighborhood it's the 11th largest neighborhood by population in the city of chicago there are 54,990 people in Rogers Park. It's the 15th largest of 77 neighborhoods in Chicago. Put them together, and you've got a really big group of people living in a really small area. How small? Well, by population density, Edgewater is the most densely populated neighborhood of the 77 in the city of Chicago. By quite a, a large measure, there's about 33,000 people per square mile in the Edgewater neighborhood, and Rogers Park is right behind it. It's the third most densely populated neighborhood in the city. So you got a lot of people living in very close proximity to one another in our immediate surroundings. Now get this. That lot of people living in very close proximity have a very interesting ethnic makeup. If you look at the ethnic makeup of Edgewater and Rogers Park, you can, I hope you can see that, but the, so the, the big piece of the pie there, the brown color represents white population. You've got the green is the Hispanic population. The pink is a black population. Blue would be Asian. And then the other is the, is the small red slice. So notice this. In the Rogers Park neighborhood, there is no ethnic majority. And in the Edgewater neighborhood, it's close. Eight years ago, when I first got here, there was no ethnic majority in Edgewater. Gentrification is beginning to change that a little bit. But nonetheless, quite a diverse mix of people. Now, of that diversity, it's not just that we have different people with different ethnic backgrounds, but we truly have nations represented in our neighborhoods. Because Nearly one-third of the people in both Edgewater and Rogers Park were born outside of the U.S. Do you know that? Nearly a third of people in both neighborhoods were foreign-born. Where do they come from? Here's the top ten foreign-born populations in each neighborhood. Edgewater, you got Mexico. Philippines, India, China, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Pakistan, Nigeria, Nepal, Vietnam, and Poland. In Rogers Park, it's Mexico, Nigeria, Belize, Ghana, Philippines, which I spelled wrong on that side, India, Jamaica, Romania, Haiti, and Ethiopia. Did you know that? There is a crazy mix of people very tightly compacted in the neighborhoods that we live in. What is all that to say? It's, it's, this, it says this, we have a unique opportunity in Edgewater and Rogers Park to see what I just explained about racial reconciliation 
as a display of the power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. As a picture of God bringing all peoples under the headship of Jesus Christ, if the church exists as the first fruits of that grand purpose of God, then this particular church and the churches around us in this particular community have an exceedingly rare and awesome opportunity to currently display what God is ultimately doing. And again, not just as a measure of saying, well, look, we're diverse because our neighborhood is diverse. But to say, no, we can go beyond that and say that our diversity or our multi-ethnicity is not rooted in just simply demographics, but rooted in the Gospel's power to bring together not just diversity, but unity. One people. One body under the headship of one Lord. And it's possible here to see that in the church as a reflection of the power of the Gospel. So what do we do? Well, we must recognize, again, first and foremost, that this idea of God uniting all things under the headship of Christ and desiring the picture of Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, worshiping together in one voice saying, salvation belongs to our God. That if we can say to the world, Look here and see a glimpse of that. Because our priority is the glory of God through the Gospel of Jesus Christ and the mission of the Holy Spirit, we ought to say, boy, this ought to be a priority for us. This ought to be a beautiful picture that we can see God accomplish in our midst if we're aware of it, desirous of it, and value it. Which is to say that we need to value it. And how do we value it? We value it by this. We have to love the other. When I say other, I, I mean that sort of like with air quotes. Those who are other than ourselves. We have to love the other. Just as God in Christ has loved us. Recognizing that God's intent is to draw the whole world to Himself. We need to love the other. How do we love the other? The same way that Paul is constantly encouraging the Jews to love the Gentiles in the New Testament. We need to remove any cultural barriers and dominances that would get in the way of the Gospel doing what the Gospel alone can do. The problem with the New Testament church was that the Jews were, were, were constantly trying to make the Gentiles Jewish first before they could be Christian. And the problem that often exists in the modern church and in dominant cultures is that the dominant culture is often trying to make everybody else like the dominant culture first before they can then worship in the church as believers. We have to learn how to remove cultural barriers and dominances. And one of the ways that we can do that is by valuing the reflection of diversity in every ministry area of our church. 
of seeing the body that God is calling to Himself and saying, how is God uniquely gifted each individual? How is Godly uniquely made each individual? And how can we foster the building up of the body so that each person's individual giftedness and each person's individual unique makeup by God can serve to benefit the whole church and reflect the beauty of the Gospel to our community. We need to reflect the diversity that God has brought and the unity that He has wrought in every ministry area, in the leadership of our church, in our missional priorities, in the way we worship, in the people that we entrust in leadership roles. And what's the best way to do all of these things? It's again to see that the equipping and the releasing of all of the gifts of God are a priority at Edgewater and in Rogers Park. And you come back over the next couple of weeks and we'll begin to talk through how the equipping, the building up, and the sending out will take place. How we ought to value and prioritize that. But it's important to say that as we do that, that nobody gets left behind because they're not a part of the dominant culture or the familiar territory, but that we say, no, it's so important for the whole world to see the unity of the body in its diversity. That's one. For the glory of God, through the Gospel of Jesus, and for the, mystery, the ministry and the mission of the Holy Spirit. Father, thank You for Your Word. And I pray, Lord, that even as we just got sort of a fire hose pointed at us and took in a whole lot of information there, Lord, I pray that You just help us to understand that, that this is not just information, it's Your heart. It's Your desire that that there is a trajectory, there is an arc that runs through the Scriptures that You have given to us from, from cover to cover that says something about the, the whole world coming to know You through Your Son. That says something about reconciliation to You and one another as a, as a key display of the power of the Gospel to save. And so Lord, I pray that You would help us as a church to, to value that. And Lord, it's one thing to say we value it. It's another thing to actually pursue it. Because when we pursue it, Lord, we know that it's going to mean that there's going to be challenges. There's going to be difficulty. There's going to be cultural tensions. Just like we saw in the New Testament with the Jews and the Gentiles, those things will happen here too. But Lord, they don't have to rule and they don't have to ruin what You're doing if we keep our eyes fixed on Your glory and the Gospel and the ministry of the Spirit who brings unity. So we ask You, Lord, to help us as a church to look like this. May we be a picture to our community that diversity diversity, though created by You, was ultimately designed to be a mosaic of unity that can only happen through Jesus. So may He get the glory in the way that You accomplish that in our church, in Rogers Park, and beyond. 
We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.